The scripture reading this morning is taken from Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. From the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be al- will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. Open your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1. Ecclesiastes has long been a book that has intrigued and puzzled me, and it has uh, made the ranks of one of my favorite books of the Bible, Um, and I don't know what that says about me. Does that make me highly morbid? Um, But I've, I've actually found it a book that has hidden deep within it great treasures of hope, um, and I, I think it, it speaks, I, I've thought that uh, as, as Americans, broadly speaking, Ecclesiastes is a book that our nation desperately needs, uh, and I hope we can tap into a bit of that today. The book is particularly puzzling because while at times it seems very orthodox, at other times it seems to run completely counter to the rest of Scripture and say things that are just flatly unbiblical. So how can the Bible actually say, vanity of vanities, all is vanity? It sounds a bit like a philosophy major coming home from his first semester in college, and he's pronouncing confidently that he's discovered the great secret of life. The universe, as we know it, is pointless, and life has no meaning. But I've become convinced that Ecclesiastes actually is a very orthodox book, although it makes its point in some kind of unorthodox ways. The author, and I'll call him the preacher because that's how it's translated here in, in the ESV, the preacher here pursues a life that would leave us wide-eyed in dismay, but that all of us at some level have run after. And that's the life of self, the life that's lived for me. But here, the preacher can pursue his desires in a way that we never could because he has essentially limitless resources and he can quite literally do anything that he wants. Whatever my eyes desired, he says, I did not keep from them. Wow. Most of us would be content with just a little more, or at least that's what we like to tell ourselves, but he's got it all. 
So we get an inside view of how that works out for him. Today we're going to have an extended reading from Ecclesiastes 1 and 2, so let's just settle in for the long haul here and let him tell us his story, and we'll begin at Ecclesiastes 1, verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Down to chapter, uh, sorry, down to verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind, for in much Wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity, and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So, I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. 
Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet, I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will, also, will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring, re- enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used, up, used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave up my heart to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils under the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he is given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Well, this is a cheery passage. This morning, I want to look at three areas within this passage that we've read, and, and the one is the quest. That's the quest for what I'm calling the good life. And then secondly, two paths by which we go after that quest. And the one, then, is the path to despair, and the other is the path to joy. So our quest, the path to despair, the path to joy. We are all of us on a quest. This is a seeking after the good life. And so for the children of Israel, their quest was a land flowing with milk and honey. For Bilbo and the dwarves, their quest was to kill the dragon and to take back their treasure. For us, well, each of us too has a treasure that we're after picture of what the good life is, and we're all on a journey and a path that we hope will take us to the good life. Now, the advertising industry has conspired with our natural covetousness to give us vocabulary for the good life. The good life that we envision always deals with better and more. Advertising works because it shows us where we lack. 
and then shows us how we can get what we lack. So we're always striving to upgrade. We don't say to ourselves, you know, I should get a less comfortable couch. I should buy a car with more dings in it. I should get a phone with less capability. Um, I, I really ought to see if I can find a job that doesn't pay me as well. I didn't wake up this morning and think, man, I hope the coffee isn't as good as it was yesterday morning. Now, I wanted a better cup of coffee, and if you know my background, you'll know why. <laughs> I recently converted. No, we're, we're more like Mr. Burns in The Simpsons, who, in response to Homer's observation that you're the richest man I know, replies, yes, but I'd trade it all for more. Our quest for more and better is described in our reading this morning in 1.3. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? There it is. We're after gain. In other words, what's the profit of our work here? The preacher's asking, so in the balance sheet of life, what reward is there for all my work? Gain here is what we're after, what what we're seeking for, and what we might be able to achieve if only we could control reality. So you and I, we understand this quest. He's on a quest for something that will satisfy. We want the good life. But here in Ecclesiastes, the preacher gives us the conclusion to the quest in verse 2 before he even announces the quest in verse 3. So he opens with vanity of vanities. What does this mean? I will just tell you that among commentators is hotly debated um, and, and they don't agree with each other. But this much is agreed on and that is Hebel. The the Hebrew word for vanity, that's translated here, vanity, hebel, is literally meaning mist or vapor or breath. And you'll see that if you have the ESV, you'll see that in the footnotes. Mist or vapor or breath. So keep that in your mind. But now, now it's taken to have different meanings depending on the context. So here it's been translated vanity. Well, that, that would mean it's all just pretty pointless. So grab at a vapor and it disappears. You know, get a handful of wind and stick it in your pocket if you'd like to. So vanity. Or another possible translation of Hebel has to do with brief. So it's, it's like breath on a cold day. Now you see it, now you don't. Another, trans, or another meaning of the word Hebel is mystery. It's misty, it's foggy, it's, it's like driving through pea soup fog. You can't see what's going on in life. So whichever of these he means or what combination of them he means, it's pretty clear that right out of the gate, his conclusion is that things are pretty gloomy. So we should ask, why is the preacher so disillusioned? Well, 1-4 answers that for us. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. We live, we die, and the earth doesn't care. It just keeps turning as though we had never lived. 
Death is a prominent theme in Ecclesiastes. The chapters are littered with gravestones all through. You know, we want to ask, well, that's gloomy. Can't we just get on with the business of living? And he says, no. We have to look honestly at our death so that we can live well. And I think just to help us to make sense of of why he's doing this and and, and to get inside his mind, I think if we can envision him as, as an old man, shaggy, thinning white hair, and he's, he's at the end of a life that's been cluttered with success and pleasure and possessions and people looking on with jealous admiration. And here, at the end of the road, he's finally looking death right in the eyes. And he's reviewing his life. And so, we too are invited to look at our lives from the end. So, imagine with me. You're on a walk in the graveyard, and you find a newly dug grave, and you sit down, hang your your legs over the side, and then in your mind, you open the coffin. It's you. So maybe it's you 70 years from now, Maybe it's you next Friday. But now, at the end of your life, ask yourself, what was your life all about? All that you were living for, what's the gain? Well, with that happy picture in mind, let's look at two paths that we can take on our quest, the path to despair and the path to joy. And we'll look first at how the preacher arrives to the, to the place of despair. So remember that the preacher is on a quest and he'll stop short of nothing to find it. And as we've seen, that path takes him to a place of despair. It's a path that we need to inspect this morning. What is the path to despair? Paul tells us in Colossians 3.1, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated on the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. But here, to walk the path to despair, we learn that you keep your eyes on things of earth. The preacher over and over uses this term, under the sun, and that's significant. It establishes the bounds of his existence and the bounds of his quest. He lives without looking beyond the sun, as though the things that he can taste and touch and feel, see and hear, those are the only realities. It sounds strangely modern. His search is under the sun, and so in 113, he tells us, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. But once again, he immediately gives us the conclusion of his search. Verses 14 to 15. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. He is grasped at gain. He has gone on his grand quest and he's found himself at the end of an active and productive life, clutching the wind. 
So the first mile marker on the path to despair is this. Keep your heart seeking and searching under the sun. Don't seek the things that are above more than you have to to quiet your conscience. So, you know, go to church, read your Bible, but don't let Christ's pursuit of you disrupt your pursuit of success. The second mile marker on the path of despair is this. Keep your heart from no pleasure. 210. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. Now, as we look at the preacher's quest and compare it with our own heart's pursuit, we're going to completely miss the point if we think it's an issue of quantities. The point is not how much we actually have in our bank account or what academic degree we actually achieve or how many international trips we took or what level of reputation we achieved among our family or our community. The point, rather, is what direction is the compass of my heart pointed the power of Ecclesiastes shows in lying, shows uh, the power of Ecclesiastes lies in showing us how we would end up if we really could control reality the way we'd like to. The preacher has unlimited resources to chase his dreams, the things his heart desires. So let's review his story. Verse 16 now of chapter 1, I have acquired great, great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. So he's gone to Jerusalem University. And, you know, don't miss this point, he's looked around and compared himself, and lo, he's done what we've only dreamed of. He's surpassed everyone else. And now, looking back, although his office wall is plastered with Jerusalem University degrees, he finds that his heart is plastered with disillusionment. 118, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. His great learning has only served to dispel his fancies of life and has shown him instead what life is actually like, like when it's lived under the sun. So he turns from the cultivation of the mind then to the pursuit of pleasure. Chapter 2, verse 1, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. Now, let's not assume that these are forbidden pleasures or questionable pleasures that he's talking about here. This same word pleasure in other places in Ecclesiastes is translated joy and described as a gift of God. So the point here is not, oh, what happens if I chase illicit pleasures? The point is rather... What happens when the compass of my heart is pointed at pleasure? And so the preacher enters this chase of a high-powered, stimulating life. He's ambitious. He's after fullness of joy, and he's going to get it with fullness of experiences. Since he has limitless resources, he can go after it to the fullest extent. And this is heady stuff. The delights of the body with wine and women. The delights of accomplishments with projects. He's a one-man wonder who designs and builds Wall Street, Central Park, Carnegie Hall, the Empire State Building. He rubs shoulders with the best of the best 
people who are at the top of their game and they get things done. He tops the Forbes list every year. And again, he looks around and he sees that, well, he really is at the top of the list. He succeeded. He surpassed everyone else. And it feels pretty good. Whatever my eyes desired, he tells us, I did not keep from them. And we ask, what's not to like about that? And he answers us sharply in chapter 2, verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. The bubbles burst, and the needle that bursts that bubble is death. Chapter 2, verse 16, the wise dies just like the fool. The respectable dies just like the disreputable. The wealthy dies just like the poor. And after the quest has been achieved, after this massive display of control over reality, he loses control in the end. He's going to die, and it's all going to go where? He doesn't even know. And now we finally have our answer to the question that he posed early in Ecclesiastes. What does a man gain with all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And the answer is bleak. Nothing. On his journey, he's finally arrived at his destination. 2.20. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair. It's gut-wrenching. Spend your years going after what you really want, and once you've got it, you end up with a pocket full of wind. It's got nothing. Well, not quite nothing. In the pursuit of what you want, you do get something. 2, 18 to 23, we see that you get sorrow, stress, sleepless nights, and then finally, despair. Brad Pitt is a wealthy actor. And in one of his movies, his character says, man, I know all these things are supposed to seem important to us, the car, the condo, our versions of success. But if that's the case, why is the general feeling out there reflecting more impotence and isolation and desperation and loneliness? Pitt then reflects on this saying, if you ask me, I say, toss all this, we gotta find something else because I know, all I know at this point in time, we are heading for a dead end, a numbing of the soul, a complete atrophy of the spiritual being, and I don't want that. Pitt's net worth is estimated about $300 million. And he continues here, the emphasis now is on success and personal gain. I'm sitting in it, and I'm telling you, that's not it. I'm the guy who's got everything. I know, but I'm telling you, once you get everything, then you're just left with yourself. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. It doesn't help you sleep any better, and you don't wake up any better because of it. Who would have thought that Brad Pitt would echo scripture? 
how might this translate into our world? Most of us aren't really seeking a balance sheet that looks like the preachers or like Brad Pitt's. We're not after showing up in Forbes magazine. We're more modest than that. Most of us just want a little more. A little more money. As a friend told me, how difficult could it be just to add one zero to the end of my annual salary? A little more education. A little more respect from my wife or my family or my church. A little nicer tractor, car, home, phone. A little better body. A little more time to do what I want to do. And as we seek the fullness of joy in these things, as we're driven by a lack of contentment to seeking and searching under the sun, then we end up walking the path to despair. In the final analysis, gain in these things isn't really what we're after. Joy in this world is found not in gain, but in gift. Joy is found not in gain, but in gift. And that brings us to our second path, the path to joy. So after this whirlwind of ambition and accomplishment, the preacher steps back to evaluate. His first evaluation has yielded a heart given up to despair. But then he takes a big step back, and God enters the picture. Did you notice that at the very beginning, chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through 2.23, God is all but absent. The preacher's life is full of himself. And now, in 2.24, God enters the picture. We get a fresh evaluation. God gives us the gift of enjoyment. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in all his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. What does he mean? Well, we tend to use our work to get what we want. We toil and strive so that after sweat and effort, we can get something to enjoy, the money, the home, the admiration of others, the vacation or retirement. The gift of God is that we actually find enjoyment in the work itself. The gift of God is also to enjoy the simple and profound pleasures of life, like eating and drinking. This is a gift from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? This is a place of contentment, not demanding more. And what a gift it is to be able to view contentment not as having what I want, but wanting what I have. But we must give up our grasping at gain and receive with open hand the gifts God chooses to give. If we grasp at gain, it eludes us like grasping at wind. But verse 26, to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. So we've looked at this question, what does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun. It's a similar question. Jesus echoes that question, Mark 8:36, for what does it profit a man to lose to, sorry, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? 
we need to ask ourselves, where is my treasure? Where is my sense of gain? Where's the compass of my heart pointing? So there's really only one place where my treasure, my heart are safe, where moth and rust and the vagaries of chance can't eat at them. It's only as our eye beholds God, as our focus is on him, that we can receive from God the treasure and the joy that we seek. Ultimately, our treasure is in God alone. As the hymn says, Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart, not be all else to me, save that thou art. What of wisdom and learning? Be thou my wisdom. What of work and wealth and reputation? Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. So much of true joy lies not in gain, but in gift. It's a matter not of finding success, but of finding God. The path to joy may have much difficulty and lack, but be full of God, for God alone can give us the simple gift of joy. And if we will let him lead us, we'll find ourselves on that path to joy and which leads into his very presence. Psalm 16, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's have a song.